Our epistle reading today is taken from uh, 2 Timothy, if you have your Bibles. If anyone wants a Bible, there are a couple there for you. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 10 to 17. Paul says to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the privilege, not only of hearing your word, but being taught by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the sanctifier, the faithful that it's his to speak to us, that it's his to rebuke us of sin, that it's his to point us to the promises and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so now, O God, we surrender ourselves to the Lordship of the Spirit of God and to his word. We submit to it. And we pray now, Father, that you'd be our teacher through the Spirit to the glory of your Son. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, Lord, may they be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our only redeemer. We pray it through the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So briefly today, looking at uh, the conclusion of chapter 10, and just want to recap uh, very briefly uh, what has gone on. Hitherto, what has led to this uh, statement by Paul, uh, Timothy has been greatly discouraged in the church. Timothy wants to give up. Timothy has been so discouraged in the church that he is ashamed not only of the gospel, but he is being tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and of his servant Paul, as if he wants nothing to do with him anymore because of the heat of various kinds of affliction. It's very, very serious. And when Paul says, stir up the gift, he's talking about Paul, uh, Timothy's pastoral calling. Timothy wants to let it all go. He's had enough, all of this trouble in the church. And neither should we be surprised um, when it comes. One of the consistent themes here in 2 Timothy is that trouble has come, trouble is coming, and trouble always will come. The church will be dogged by trouble. Deceivers growing worse and worse. Um, imposters being deceived and deceiving growing worse and worse, Paul says. And so there's a kind of um, wonderful realism 
about to Timothy with respect to the church. It's very, very real. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no gloss here, as it were. There's no sugarcoating to the church. Um, so last week in the first half of chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, we looked at all the litany of um, uh, evil characteristics of all those people that will come, the sign of the eschaton, and all of those people that even now are in the church who are bearing witness to the spirit of the age. Paul says you're to avoid these people, but they're present. Janus and Jambres, they, they worm their way into the church. That image of Janus and Jambres, of course, is very important. Because Janus and Jambres perform signs just like Moses did. Look just the same. And so these people, they come into the church, and it looks just like the real thing. But in fact, it's so far, uh, so far from it. And so um, we saw this uh, description of all these evildoers. We saw the trouble in the church uh, in chapter 3. And then Paul makes this uh, about turn now in verse 10. And uh, there's a, uh, this very juxta, uh, important juxtaposition between Timothy and his role in the church and his mission and all this um, nefariousness and uh, um, uh, counterfeit spirituality that goes on uh, before and around him. You then, Suda, uh, 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 verse 10, you then, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. Now, I want to just mention, first of all, the significance of Paul as model here. Paul points to himself to Timothy. You know who I am, Timothy. You know where I've been, Timothy. You know what I've done. You know what I'm doing, Timothy. Timothy, fasten your eyes on me. Look to me, Timothy. Timothy is bewildered. He's disoriented. He doesn't know what to do. And Paul's steadying him. Timothy, look at me. It's, a, it's an incredible thing for someone to say, to get to that place in your Christian pilgrimage where you can say to someone, look at me. Look at who I am. You see, the Christian life is never about just me and Jesus, me walking with Jesus. We do need those people in the church upon whom we can fasten our eyes and say, they are walking with the Lord. I see it incarnate in them. I see the life of God in them. And this encourages me and this moves me in a way that all the abstract things that we learn about can't quite do. There's something about the incarnate reality of God in his people. And Paul says this in Philippians 3, fasten your eyes on those people who walk according to the same model. So Paul says it's not just me. There are others who walk like Jesus walked. Think about them. Fasten your eyes upon them. So I want to say two things to you today, how important it is that we too can get to this kind of place where we can say to young and discouraged people in a godly way. I mean, I've said to you before, the whole kind of look at me, society is deeply problematic. But here it's right. Look at me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. How important for each of you to get to that place, to go through the, the hard yards of being disciplined and growing godly in Christ Jesus so that one day you can say to a discouraged Timothy, look at me 
as I follow Jesus. Hold on, be steady, watch what I do. That's significant. Secondly, I want you to notice how Paul is listing now a litany of virtues in correspondence to the litany of vices that we saw in chapter 3. Chapter 3, one following, Paul names all these bad vices, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, etc., etc. And now Paul, with this juxtaposition, begins to enumerate virtues that correspond to Christ and correspond to himself. He talks about his teaching, that is right doctrine, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, and then this grouping of persecutions and sufferings. Not like that, Timothy, but like this. And I, I want you just to think for a moment about how Paul groups these things. Teaching, conduct, aim in life. Right doctrine, right life, right mission. Aim in life. Paul's aim in life, of course, is his mission to the Gentiles, that I may win as many as I possibly can for the sake of the kingdom. But doctrine comes first. Doctrine fuels and informs right living. Right living and right doctrine fuel mission. Those are the three things that Paul keeps in proper, proper perspective. Unless your doctrine is right, your conduct will be askew. And if your doctrine and conduct are not right, your mission is without purpose and without avail. Do not put the mission before the doctrine, as so many churches today are doing, by the way. Just mission, forget about the doctrine. I heard a very, very boisterous and exuberant sermon yesterday in uh, Windsor Castle, or Windsor Cha uh, the chapel in Windsor. Very boisterous, very fiery, very colorful, uh, very moving, very passionate. But it was, it was full of mission. Just love the world, love everybody, love, love, love. It was vacuous of doctrine. The doctrine, one, that we are utterly unable to reach that love without Christ, and that only through Christ's death and resurrection do we now have the power by the Spirit to do it for his glory to his glory, to his praise. A praise that will only properly be attained in the new Jerusalem, which is not going to happen here, as we heard yesterday in that now famous sermon that the whole world is applauding. This is the new earth, he said. Well, that's not coming now. Good doctrine, good life, leads to the right kind of mission, uh, Paul says here. Secondly, look at, look at what he says next. Uh, teaching, doctrine, conduct, mission, faith, patience, love. Patience, of course, patience is waiting, patience is enduring, patience is looking forward to something that's coming. That's what patience is. Patience is another word for hope. Faith, hope, and love. Paul says, is the substance of who he is uh, and what's he's, what he's about, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, love. Don't forget these three things, Timothy. Um, and then he moves into this section on persecutions. 
uh, uh, he endures. Notice that the, the steadfastness here, my steadfastness before the persecutions in verse 10. The steadfastness, the enduring, comes only after all these other things are in place. Doctrine, life, mission, faith, hope, and love, which is the substance of our life in Christ. Only then does he have the ability to endure all these things that are coming. And he talks now about Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. This is Paul's first missionary journey. Paul goes to Antioch. He has amazing success. He preaches the gospel. There's an eruption of response towards the gospel. But the Jews get jealous, and they, they rise up against him. Paul shakes the dust off his feet, and then he moves on. He goes from Antioch, and he goes to Iconium. In Iconium, again, tremendous success. The gospel is blessed by God, and the city once again is roused, but also roused against him. And now they threaten to stone Paul. Paul escapes Iconium without being stoned, but then he makes his way to Lystra. And he preaches the gospel with great success. But now they not only threaten to stone Paul, <laughs> they do stone Paul. And if you remember at Lystra, they stone him to such a degree that they think he's dead. And they drag, him out, they drag his body out of the city as one who has no longer any life in him. But miraculously, Paul gets up, he brushes himself off, and he says, let's move on. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Many are the trials. Many are the... This, Paul, Paul's not only appealing to his own personal experience. I was dead or near dead. The Lord miraculously delivered me from being stoned. Stoning is one of the most gruesome ways to die. Jesus delivers Paul supernaturally from that. And now Paul quotes the Psalms. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. There is not one trial in this life that the Lord does not promise to deliver you from. It's a wonderful promise. And Paul banks on it from the Psalms. Paul experiences it through his stoning. Now he reminds Timothy, Timothy, this kind of stuff is going to go on and on and on. He says in verse uh, 13, this is evil people. And impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then in verse 12, just prior to that, he says, Timothy, what happened to me is not just for me. Now, Paul's a model of it, right? Remember what Jesus said about Paul to, um, um, to Ananias who baptized him? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And then Paul makes that enigmatic saying, I fill up in myself the afflictions that are lacking in Jesus Christ. Paul's a model of suffering, but now he says to Timothy, Timothy, it's for everybody. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now for Paul... Certainly, the persecution came through preaching justification by faith. It's no longer through the law of Moses that we're, we're made, or never was that, we're not made righteous through the law of Moses. 
Christ sets us free, Paul said in that first missionary preaching, from all that the law of Moses couldn't set us free from. And that anger was roused against them. But here, notice that the persecution comes from what? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. It's our godliness that will arouse persecution from the world. It's our actually living out a righteous life. Because if you go out into the world today and you start trumpeting the doctrine of justification by faith, I guarantee there will be very, very few people who care at all about whether or not you feel that you are forensically justified by an alien righteousness. It's not going to bother them. It will bother them when they see you living a godly life and say no to sin. And the godliness begins to convict them of their own sin. And they lash out. And they will have none of it. Because the world loves its sin. It loves it. And your godly life, it exposes them. This is what Paul says right in Ephesians. Have no participation in the fruitless works of darkness, but rather what? Rather expose them. And that expose is hateful to the world. If you begin to live a godly life and don't participate in their dirty jokes in the workplace, you don't participate in the little white lies that make the world go round. Just tell a lie. Just Okay, just kind of scratch that out. Let's pretend that didn't happen. Let's just do a little fib there. If you refuse, and it ref your righteousness, your real righteousness, reflects on their godlessness, it will arouse persecution. This is what Paul's saying here. And we have to remember that. As we, we give ourselves to this life, the persecution, it's going to come. Paul, Paul now continues. He says, um, remember me, Timothy. Remember how Christ delivered me, and so will deliver you. Keep your eyes on me. And then he says, keep your eyes on others. He continues this theme of the models of faith. Uh, and he says now uh, in verse 14, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom, and the relative pronoun here in the Greek is in the plural, from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred uh, writings. Well, who's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about his mother, Lois and his grandmother Eunice. From a baby, or a child, or infant, I should say, Timothy has been taught the scriptures from, uh, by his parents. Now, on the one hand, this underscores the significance of what we do in the church in, in teaching our kids the Bible. It underscores the importance of what you do in the home in teaching your kids the Bible. It is utterly imperative. Paul turns them back to, to this and to these people. But it's also significant here that he turns Timothy to the sacred writings. He says, on the one hand, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, all scripture, it's breathed out. This is that famous word here, theoponoustos. Uh, it's, it's, it's breathed upon by God. It comes out as the breath of God. And it's profitable. Now, why is Paul needing here to reaffirm, reaffirm this, the, the inspiration of the scriptures? These are the kind of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we read these things. Why does Paul feel compelled to tell Timothy 
to remind him all of Scripture's trustworthy. All those Old Testament passages, they are trustworthy. Well, evidently, these false teachers that had been coming into the church had been attempting to unmoor Timothy's confidence in the Old Testament and to unmoor the church's uh, sense of the legitimacy of Old Testament scriptures. Timothy, they are all profitable. They are all worth your while. There's not one thing back there that you shouldn't be paying attention to. Now, Paul is not talking to Timothy about the New Testament letters here. From childhood, you've been taught the sacred writings. He's not talking about New Testament letters. He's talking about the Old Testament. And something had been happening in the church, some form of early Gnosticism, a dichotomy or a dualism that put the old over here and the new over here. And we must never do that. Ever, ever, ever as a church to dismiss the Old Testament somehow as less than or as um, unworthy of our attention. Why? Because they're able to make us wise for salvation. Through Jesus Christ, of course, he, he brings the light that we need to truly appreciate the Old Testament. But now he says it's all breathed out by God. This is a wonderful uh, reference to Genesis 2. God taking Adam out of the dust and breathing into his nostrils. The word, Tim, uh, Paul says, is creative. The word is that same creative power that if we give ourselves to it, will likewise create us. It is, it is the breath of God. Now notice what it's profitable for. He gives four, he gives four verbs here, or, or four um, qualities it's profitable, now the Old Testament here, it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if you look just briefly to chapter 4, Paul says this again about the, what the Word of God, preach the Word. Now notice, when he says preach the Word, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Preach the Word. What is it good for? Well, to reprove people. Verse 2 of 4. To rebuke people. To exhort people to live differently with complete patience and teaching. And Paul says that here the Word of God is good to reprove, it is good to correct, it is good to help people to grow into their godliness. The function of preaching, as Paul lays it out here, is to correct our crookedness. The function of preaching is to expose, to level human pride, and to demolish everything that exalts itself against the notion of God. That's what Paul says here. It's very, very clear. It's not what we like to hear today. We don't want to come to church to be rebuked. We don't want to come to church to be reproved. We don't want to come to church to be corrected. But that's what the Word of God does, says Paul. It levels us, and it points us to the only solution, which is in Jesus Christ. Paul's final word here um, to Timothy is about the pastor. He says, um, verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, 
and equipped for every good work. Now, in one sense, the man of God applies to all of us. But here in verse 17, Paul is saying, speaking specifically to Timothy as a pastor. This, this phrase here, it's hatu theu anthropos. The man of God is a phrase that's linked to the Old Testament in 30 passages or more. It's, it's, it's a phrase that's used of Moses, and it's a phrase that's used of all of the prophets that follow him. And Paul's saying here that, Timothy, if you want to be the pastor that you need to be, then you need to give yourself to the word of God. That's your job. That's what you do. You know it. You study it. You absorb it. You live it. You proclaim it so that all that's contrary to it out there can be reproved, rebuked, exhorted, and then built up, built up in Christ. This is just Acts 6-2, right? The apostles realize that they're being, they're being pulled away from their primary task. And see, the apostles say that it's not right that we should give up the word of God to serve tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and we will give ourselves to the ministry of the word. You don't want a pastor who's flying hither and thither, doing all kinds of things except giving himself to the word of God. It is only the word of God that can fix the problem. What's the problem? Brothers and sisters, the problem is sin in the church and out of the church. One problem in this life, it is a people who are distant from God, out of sync with God, crooked, who need to come under submission to and obedience to the word of God. And only the word can expose it. And only the word can point to the good news. The good news today is that all of our sins, they're forgiven. And if you're like me, you've sinned many times this week. And we're about to hear it today at the table that your sins are forgiven. They are gone. They are not held against you. That's the first bit of good news. The second bit of good news is what we sung today. Not only that he, that he washes away our sin, but he breaks its power. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Be to me the double cure. And so God grant us grace uh, today brothers and sisters, to fix our eyes on Paul, to remember that if we want to live a godly life, we too will be persecuted, and that we must give ourselves as people and as individuals to the Word of God. It is only the Word of God. Can I say something to you just off the cuff here? You, if you do not have a plan right now to work through the Word in your daily life, you're not doing it. You must give yourself to the book. It's the only thing in this life that's gonna help you. Have a plan, read through it, and read through the whole thing. Unfortunately, I used to have a, a systematic theology prof who was convinced that we have the wrong testament in our back pockets. All those guys who walk around with a New Testament in their back pockets, they're carrying around the wrong Testament. Tongue-in-cheek, of course, because Paul says here, all of this Old Testament is good for you. Profitable. 
It'll help you and correct you and reprove you and exhort you. It'll give you life. I just read a beautiful uh, collection of stories of old Norse mythology. And you know that, that god uh, Freya? Freya was the god of life. Freya was the god who, who brought uh, life to pastures and life to flowers. And his face was like the sun. And everybody loved Freya and he was strong. And Freya had this sword. The sword that would, was so powerful that it would do anything it wanted to do. It could defeat any enemy and it would leap out of his hand. It would, it would fight on its own. And if you've read, if you've read uh, one of Tolkien's stories um, uh, about his dog Garm, uh, what is it now? One of his, his short stories is about a sword that, that leaps out of this owner's hands and, and fights dragons and uh, the dragon Chrysophylax and fights, fights giants. This is where Tolkien gets it from. Well, Freya was moonstruck one day by a giantess named Gerd. He wanted her so badly. And he was depressed and he was moping around. And a servant came to him and he said, I want you to go to Gerd, make that long journey and ask if she'll be my wife. And the servant said, well, what will you give me? He looked at his sword and he says, your sword, Freya, is very nice. And Gerd said, I don't care, take my sword. And so his servant takes the sword, he gets Gerd for his wife, and Fry seems to be living happily ever after. But Ragnarok was coming. The fire demon Suter was rising, and the end of the world is approaching. And Fry, at the very end, he fights with Suter, and he doesn't have his sword, the sword that could have defeated him, and he falls. And we forget our sword. We give it up because we're moonstruck with stuff in life. And we fall. We leave the only thing that can defend us from all these things that come against us. Like, do not neglect your sword. Don't neglect the word. It's not worth it. One day is not worth it without giving yourself wholly to the book. Let it breathe upon you. Let its creative life stir in you. Let it make you who God wants you to be. This is Paul's word uh, to Timothy today. And it's Paul's word to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.